0: In November of 1889, a 25-year-old journalist named Nellie Bly set off from New York with a mission. She was going to circumnavigate the globe. Bly was inspired by the fictional voyage of Phileas Fogg, a Londoner who traveled around the world in 80 days. That seemed impossibly fast at the time, but Bly's goal was even faster. She would make the journey in 75 days, at most. Along her journey, Bly made a stop in France to visit Jules Verne, the author who had created the character she was racing. Verne was skeptical. Sure, he had imagined a trip that fast, but could Bly actually do it? It was a close call. A rough crossing on the Pacific delayed her, but the owner of the newspaper she worked for chartered a train to bring her home. She arrived back in New York in 72 days, beating Phileas Fogg's time and setting a briefly held world record. If it weren't for that chartered train, Bly wouldn't have returned in time. But if it weren't for Jules Verne, she might never have left at all. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, we talk to one of the world's leading scholars about the impact a book can have. In this episode, I sat down with Harvard history professor Joyce Chaplin to talk about Around the World in 80 Days— a 19th-century novel that reflected and helped to create a new global consciousness.
1: The book is an adventure story that was written for a Paris newspaper, Le Temps, and was serialized in that sort of breathless way in which you'd be waiting for the next installment that the author Jules Verne was busy writing.
0: Jules Verne was born in Nantes, France, in 1828. He was a prolific writer, Around the World in 80 Days was part of a collection of 54 novels called Extraordinary Voyages, and he was also quite inventive, known for bending and blending genre lines. He wrote works for the stage and the page, including romance-tinged adventure stories and science fiction.
1: He's a pioneer now of what might be regarded as steampunk, that he really imagines this Victorian world, and you can, you know, see boring, privileged white guys going to the reform club, droning on and on and on about stuff, and then, oh my God, somebody's off in a balloon. (laughs) They've got electric clocks in their households. They have submarines, for crying out loud. So it's that level of imagination that I think has been the longest-lasting legacy of Jules Verne's work, even as a lot of the specific novels and characters are not so well remembered now And his glorification of imperialism, masculinity, uh, haven't worn well. But that way in which he sews together different ways of being technologically and physically and materially in the world remains really quite compelling.
0: Around the World in 80 Days was first serialized in 1872 and published as a book a year later. Although it's an adventure story, the protagonist, Phileas Fogg, is not an adventurer by trade. His journey starts with a bet, Here's Professor Chaplin reading a bit of the text.
1: A true Englishman doesn't joke when he's talking about so serious a thing as a wager, replied Phileas Fogg solemnly. I will bet £20,000 against anyone who wishes that I will make the tour of the world in 80 days or less in 1920 hours or 115,200 minutes. Do you accept?
0: Part of the excitement of the story is going around the world in 80 days felt like extraordinarily fast. Before, going around the world was something only a few people in history had done. It was just like not even a possibility for a normal person.
1: Going around the world was actually a possibility and recognized as such and had been since 1519 when one ship and 35 men returned to Spain having survived Magellan's kind of crazy around-the-world voyage. Magellan himself didn't make it back. He was the most famous man never to have gone around the world. And people continued to do it. And it became a kind of trademark of imperial power that various European powers would demonstrate their global reach uh, by making a circumnavigation. And the time for doing so had been going down. Thanks to newly developed current and wind charts, it was easier
0: than ever for sailing ships to find their way. Ship design was evolving as well. The new clipper sailing ships of the mid-1800s were built for speed rather than cargo capacity. But maritime technologies weren't the only factors at play.
1: The thing that really speeds up around the world travel are two other factors in the 19th century. First of all, the consolidation of European imperialism, which means that Some people can travel around the world in safety, convenience, and greater speed, simply because of the fist of European power in different parts of the world. The other factor would be the development of steam power, uh, the way in which first ships and then railroads, trains, uh, would make travel not only faster but predictable, that you would have not only set departure times, but arrival times that you could guarantee because you were burning fossil fuels uh, to create that kind of travel. So when Jules Verne has this imaginary around-the-world voyage, uh, he is not so much defining a new world as consolidating a lot of things that people already understood about the world and making something implausible entirely plausible.
0: Part of the colonial imagination, as I understand it, is that Europeans saw themselves as ahead of time, that they were the vanguard of history and progress, and that because they were ahead of time technologically, civilizationally, culturally, that they had a certain right to the rest of the world, a right to explore and to claim
1: It is the first demonstration of human power on a planetary scale. So those 35 men who come back um, from Magellan's voyage out of hundreds and hundreds who die or desert along the way. They create this visual icon that you draw a line on the map all the way around the world and say, yes, actual human beings did this. There had been all kinds of metaphorical ways of thinking about humans in relation to the entire Earth. But this was like, no, <laughs> this is not a metaphor. This really happened. And there it becomes a kind of hallmark of imperialism. This is the kind of planetary power we have as members of certain kinds of cultures from a certain part of the world. So it is absolutely an imperial gesture and an imperial demonstration. And would definitely have been recognized as such by anyone reading Jules Verne at the time. What's interesting about the novel, which was first serialized in 1872 and then published as a novel in 1873, is that non Western powers are beginning to get in on this game. We are planetary too, the Japanese, for instance, would say. They send an around the world delegation around the same time, and they would be followed by Korean embassies and other voyagers from beyond the Western core who say, no, this may have been an imperial demonstration, but it might be one that globally all human beings are capable of.
0: It makes me think that human power exerted on a planetary scale is linked to divine imagination in some way, that you know, previously only God could kind of see or behold the entire world. We we're always localized as particular tribes. But now, right, European colonials and then other subsequent powers think of themselves as masters of something cosmic. And I, I wonder, is there a link between circumnavigation and kind of ecological extraction ideas?
1: There's one running joke in the novel. Passepartout, who goes with fog, accidentally leaves the gas lamp burning in his bedroom in London. Fogg says, yes, so that's your fault, and you'll be paying for it. And it's an embedded gag uh, that for the entire journey, fossil fuel is burning and burning and burning. The joke is probably now on us. We realize even more than people in the 1870s uh, what the actual planetary cost would be. But Verne is really, interestingly, trying to remind people of what we would now call a carbon footprint. This is apparent in the illustrations of the novel as well. When the novel is published as a book, there's an illustration at the front with Fog and Passepartout pointing up at an image of the Earth. And in the middle of the Earth is this gas lamp burning, as if that is the metric, uh, that we measure the planet according to what kinds of fuels that we're taking out of it and burning and burning and burning now constantly.
0: What role did this book play in fostering a certain kind of tourism industry where cultures are sort of props or things to consume or stories together.
1: I think especially the problem of these places being invisible, just terrain to be passed through to set a record, remains absolutely problematic. And in this regard, one technological development of the 19th century was implicated in this, and that was the telegraph. There wasn't a telegraph cable all around the world yet, but people were already talking as if there were, and there was going to be. And so the way in which it prefigures the internet, um, the way in which you could be in the middle of some place where you might be paying attention to that place, but no, (laughs) you're online, um, just as people in the past would have been at the telegraph office, getting or receiving information about distant places that mattered more to them. So Fogg is in communication, back to the Reform Club, his bank, whoever.
0: There is something about like a heroic will um, that's able to harness technology to accomplish goals. That animating spirit of reaching to frontiers, um, going to the edge of humanly possible, where do you see some of this 19th century adventure, travel, uh, colonial spirits present today?
1: It's not so much the adventure necessarily that I'm interested, but this sense of planetary scale. What is distinctive about Jules Verne's novel is that sense of confidence that certain people, at least, can easily stroll out of the reform club and go around the world. And it may cost money and the gas may be burning, but hey, it can be done. This was in such contrast to the way around-the-world travel used to kill most people who tried it, and everyone knew that, that it was incredibly dangerous and risky and just not something that you would embark on. I really think that now we live with both these legacies where that era of confidence is so attractive, The idea of democratizing it is important. Um, And yet the way in which this seems maybe not the best set of goals to continue with and that there may be ways in which little did we know we were killing ourselves even in that era of confidence now that the accumulation of carbon in our atmosphere is the gas lamp bill that we'll be paying.
0: So with Columbus or Magellan, they expanded – this imaginary. But it wasn't until some of these more available transportation technologies or communication technologies like the telegram that people started to think this is maybe even possible for me. Is that, is that the major shift that you're identifying, that it's sort of a democratic, more mass, uh, you know, widely available feeling that the world is ours or the world is possible as a whole?
1: Well, it would have only been democratic within terms of people who had access to steam power, to protections of various imperial systems. And I really want to emphasize that, um, that having a passport even at this moment in history was a rarity and a privilege, and not everyone could really run around with that kind of identity paper. And the way in which you could feel comfortable going around the world really depended on class, race, um, access to imperial networks. It did seem, however, as if this were a moment when, well, maybe more people could do this. Um, Maybe more nations could issue passports. Maybe the cost of travel would go down. And indeed, that's what happens. So it's not only that Jules Verne's novel, in a sense, wraps up a lot of historical processes that had happened and were happening and people would recognize, but he makes them even clearer. But then the book is an invitation to all kinds of people to try this. And it becomes this sort of exercise where people can say, I'm going to make a point that I can do this too.
0: One notable navigator was Li Gu, a Chinese man who was sent out by the government of China in the late 19th century. Because of his official status, he would have had all the documents and introductions he needed. But it was still a challenging time to be a non-white traveler.
1: He talks very movingly about being in Wyoming, where he meets... Chinese workers building the railroad. And he says it it was as if we were like family, you know, to meet these people, to know that there were other global migrants who migrated out of necessity. And his awareness that he was not like them, but was, that racism meant um, that they were like family and that they, in a sense, had to meet and comfort each other in somebody else's country, if not empire. The other invitation is to think about speed and oddness of travel. (laughs) So people go around the world on bicycles, and they start with penny farthings, those Victorian bicycles that have the enormous front wheel where I just can't even imagine. What did people think when they saw, you know, something like this on the horizon coming toward them? But nevertheless...
0: That was just one of the strange ways that people found to get around the world. Others rode horses or mules or simply walked.
1: Sometimes these two invitations that more people should be able to go around the world and unusual travel would be a great way of kind of marking a new way of doing it. Sometimes these converge. So I want to talk about ISK Sobolov, who is a white Russian, a refugee from the Russian Revolution, who ends up in Asia without any kind of national documents. He's a person without a passport and a nationless person. Precisely to help this kind of emergency and as an early way of providing refugees with passports, the Nansen Commission of the League of Nations created what was called the Nansen Passport which was a document backed by the League of Nations to say that this person existed. This was her name, this is where they were born, these are the rights they should have. Sobolov sets off, first on a bicycle, eventually on a motorcycle, and he has a nuns and passport. And the first couple of times people look at it, And they wonder, but interestingly, the more it becomes stamped, the more it just becomes accepted. And he is just a great test of how you give a refugee person rights. He makes it back around the world, and he makes sure he goes over the terrain that he covered by bicycle by the same motorcycle, so he can claim that he did it all on this newfangled, amazing kind of conveyance, and with this completely unprecedented documentation.
0: What was the immediate reception Of this book obviously there were people starting to do different ones but what what was the immediate impact of the of the text
1: there was a way in which it validated all efforts to create built environments that would speed up travel so the novel had featured the brand new suez canal opened 1869 Um, the brand new transcontinental railroad across north america opened 1869 as well as a new branch of a railway across India and the way in which the novel was saying there are these things and they are good Uh, and making people think that reconfiguring the actual planet for human convenience was part of the progress of their era. There'd already been a kind of imaginary of How many dollar coins, um, how many books put spine to spine would go around the world? And these become very evocative in terms of, well, how do we think about our planet-girdling technologies and units of value that make it easy for us to think of ourselves on a planetary scale every day, all the time?
0: So we've talked about how it sort of encouraged a colonial perspective, but there's also perhaps— uh, a more felicitous um, development, which is a sense that we're united. And I wonder, did, did standardization of time, of, of technology, of maybe legal recognitions, I mean, some of that too seems like maybe it led to things like uh, the League of Nations, or the United Nations. Um, I mean, just having standardized time seems like this, this great kind of binding technology between peoples.
1: Magellan's crew, when they come back, are the actual first time travelers um, because they have changed the day in their calendar by going around the world and crossing some line that eventually, by the end of the 19th century, is more or less officially placed in the Pacific. And this has been very controversial. I mean, people in Pacific nations point out now that this is a legacy of European imperialism to think that the part of the world opposite to Europe is a strange place where the calendar changes and poof, uh, you're either a day richer or poorer. And a lot of Pacific nations still would like the international dateline. Put somewhere else, please. Um, there the is a designation that they are the back of beyond um, and uh, makes time truly shared. It has this kind of global universal quality now, but at somebody's expense that they are stigmatized in that way.
0: Time is a key player in Around the World in 80 Days, both in terms of plot and characterization.
1: So at the very start, Jules Verne compares Phileas Fogg to a chronometer, as if he's something that ticks very, very steadily and is keeping track of time calmly. The surprise of the novel is that somehow Phileas Fogg, chronometer, doesn't remember that if you travel around the world going eastward, you lose a day on the calendar uh, because you're, in a sense competing with the sun and changing your position in time, even as you're returning to the same place on Earth. And that is crucial to the plot, because when Fogg returns, he assumes he's lost the bet, but he's actually returned early and within that 80-day measure. But he, the chronometer, lost track of time.
0: What, what is its link to techno-boosterism, that if there's problems in the world, we can invent our way out of them?
1: I definitely think that the novel is techno-optimistic. So Fogg is presented as an early adopter. Uh, His household is not only fired by coal gas, but has electricity, uh, which in 1872 in London would have been kind of unusual. And he even has an electric clock, which in an era of key-wound clocks would be like, you know, us having an atomic clock at the time. It's conceivable, but kind of a conceit that you would have newfangled toys like that. So Verne was definitely someone who believed that human ingenuity and predominantly male ingenuity within Western societies uh, was creating a better world uh, for everyone This was pretty widespread at the time, so I'm not sure that he invented that so much as was kind of sticking up for that perspective at that moment, that we can invent our way out of difficulties and come up with solutions to problems. We, of course, might wonder about the cost of that. Again, I think the one pessimistic or questioning thing that There in plants in his novel is that burning lamp, uh, that question about, well, we're extracting all this coal. How long can that last, and what does that cost? And can certain people pay it?
0: This question of power over resources, technology, people, and land is a big one in the novel. But all power has its limit.
1: One way of looking at the novel is to see it as a kind of comedy about what you can control and what you can't control. Fog is represented as this tightly wound chronometer who can predict everything. And yet, he's a betting man. So the whole reason he goes around the world is because he's gambling. He's always playing cards with people. So he's leaving certain things to chance and accepting that, you know, he's smart. He knows how to gamble. uh, But you don't control that situation. And then, in some ways, the most... Amazing thing for a novel by Jules Verne is that it's a woman who saves the day. The woman
0: is Aouda, an Indian princess whom Fogg and Passepartout take from her home in India when they find her being forced to sacrifice herself atop her husband's funeral pyre. Aouda accompanies the pair on their journey home and falls in love with Fogg in the process.
1: When Fogg gets back to London, he thinks he's lost the bet. He thinks he's lost all his money, and he's taken this woman away from India promising her safety in London, and he has to say, look, I'm friendless, I'm penniless, I have no family, what can I do? And she says, well, you could marry me, I would be your friend and your family. And he says, yes, and then they have to go find a clergyman, and that's how they find out that they've lost a day, because they asked for a marriage to be performed on Sunday, and the clergyman says, I can't do that. And they say, well, it's not Sunday, and then, of course, they realize everything is going on. So this way in which this is supposed to be a novel about the British Empire, control of the world, knowing things, planning things, being confident about things. And it's the non-European woman (laughs) who is the key to this story. Again, raises questions about Jules Verne was imagining a kind of confidence that we have about the planet, but in some sense he's planting this tiny suggestion that maybe... It's something that has to open up and include other kinds of people.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. RIT Large is a Lyceum Original Production. Lyceum is a curated podcast listening app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next week on RIT Large, I sit down with Stanford professor Rowan Doran to discuss The Life and Passion of William of Norwich, a 12th century conspiracy theory that's still with us today. What makes this book so powerful is not the book as as, as a physical book. What made this book so powerful is that the story that it told could be retold and retold and retold. I think that's A revealing and sort of terrifying feature of this book, which is that we can trace this fear and this hatred back to a single text that no one's ever heard of. Don't miss it. Subscribe now in the Lyceum app or wherever you listen to podcasts.